Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. This episode was a lot of fun. It isn't often I get to interview another podcast host and someone with a breadth of experience and background of our guest. Robert Christensen is a VP and cloud strategist at Cloud Technology Partners, which is now part of HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Robert has had a long and interesting career starting his own companies and building world-class organizations. Robert is also passionate about people and helping them succeed, and I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome everybody to the Masters of Data podcast, and I am very excited for my guest today. We we actually met at an event that we were both at recently, a AWS reInvent, which I've actually talked about on this podcast, I think once or twice. And I was very excited to get him on is uh, Robert Christensen. He works with Cloud Technology Partners, which has recently got acquired by HPE, and he's the uh, he's a VP and cloud strategist over over there. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. I'm happy to uh, we got a chance to come together after reInvent. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, as I've been uh, learning more about you and doing some research, you've got your your hands on all sorts of different things. You have your own podcast, and uh, you've you really had a long and interesting career. So as I always do on this podcast, I love just to start off and get to know the person and bring kind of the human story in. So, I mean, tell us a little more about yourself. I mean, how did you end up where you are and what drove you to get in, involved in this part of the technology industry? That's a great question. When I was 16, my dad suggested that I take a basic programming class in high school. It was in Virginia. Hmm. And um, at the time, it was an HP 3000. And they had a basic, oh, cool. and you had a teleprompter, and you would be able to type in your basic commands. And it was in high school. And my first programming job ever was to build an invitation on the computer for a party at my house. We were 17. And back then in Virginia, the drinking age was 18. So it was pretty loose and wild back then. And like 300 kids showed up at our house and just totally trashed my dad's place, right? And so it was completely <laughs> insane. But that was my first experience with programming a computer, right? And then so, of course, I loved it. And then I went to uh, Chico State up in Northern California. And Chico State is this, uh, what I didn't know about is I'm really naive. Uh, Chico's known for being the world's like number one party school back in the 80s. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. No, it was named number one on Playboy um, Party School. But I didn't know that. My dad didn't know that either. So he sends me there because it was a really top-ranked computer school. It was top-ranked, world-class. And so I went there for computers and found out that there was a little bit more going on besides computers. <laughs> and, uh, man, I face-planted my first semester. I, I was so unprepared. But I pulled it out, you know, ended up uh, becoming pretty good at computers and got uh, programming jobs. When I was uh, newly out of school, I took on uh, one of the very first C programming jobs that ever uh, available on PCs back in the 80s. And I was really liked it, liked PCs a lot. And then, so I never had any mainframe. I never had any of that stuff. I learned yeah. on card decks and that kind of stuff like that, but, you know, rapidly got into the advancing technologies. And I've been in, in entrepreneurs and, and startup companies ever since. So my like my first real job was with a startup back in the 80s, oh, a company called cool. Ordain. Yeah. The first data, uh, it was called a database machine. It was a back-end machine database server. And then so, you know, did fast forward, got into professional services in the, in the mid-90s, a lot of sales, sales leadership, that type of stuff. And then started mm -hmm. my own companies and I had the world's largest fly fishing website in the early 2000s. Uh, oh, really? 2000, yeah, 2002 <laughs> to 2006. I had a, a company called The Mighty Fly. I'm a big fly fisherman. So I saw 
fly fishing on the internet as my my holy grail of my my freedom to never have to work for anybody again, you know. <laughs> and uh, that didn't quite you know pan out, but uh, it was a great exercise. Learned a ton about online marketing, a ton, mm. ton early days, right? Right. Back in the days when you uh, something called Overture, it was this first pay per click system that came out right around Google was Overture. And it was oh, yeah, I remember company. that. Remember those guys? It was owned by Yahoo. Yeah. And um, you used to be able to download. They used to give you all their analytics for free. And so I did that, got really good at the dot bomb hit. I bailed out of the technology <laughs> industry, went to uh, started a mortgage company for about four years. I did that and got out of that around 2004, 2005. Ease my way back into technology again. Did a bankless bank called Bank Freedom. I was a competitor with uh, uh, ING Direct. So we funded that startup, uh, sold my assets in that one. Did another startup called Cloud Nation. That was a Citrix for rent platform on AWS. It was one of the first ever VDI virtual desktops on Amazon back in 2011, 2012. Yeah, so I've been involved with the cloud for quite some time, whether you call it ASPs or cloud or virtualization, whatever, for quite some time. And we sold that company, Cloud Nation. I sold it. Did okay. You know, I was able to pay off a lot of debt and buy a house and kind of settle my wife down. She was getting pretty upset with having to eat, you know, mac and cheese every night. You know, wonder <laughs> if we're going to pay payroll. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I think about that, Ben. You know, it's about my path here to where I am. So I, I we sold the company and I joined Cloud Technology Partners in 2013 to help establish the public cloud practice. And our first engagements were primarily with Capital One. And we were doing some pretty good stuff on security and building a, the platforms with them back in 2014. And we built a global practice. It became world renowned. And, you know, we set some really big, hairy, audacious goals, some BHAG goals that were like we wanted to be the number one security company, professional services company for security and for implementations globally on public cloud. And we set that goal and we I think we nailed it. That's great. Yeah, and we got acquired by HPE last year. So I'm, um, they've asked me to stick around for uh, a while to help them transition and do that. So that's what I've been doing. And I handed off the uh, global delivery roles uh, back in November, the beginning of this year. I mean, the later this year, uh, November of this year, excuse me. So I've got, really wanted to move into more of a strategist role. And uh, at the same time, I've been building a coaching practice, a professional coaching practice where I help technology folks try to find their way through this industry at the same time. It's pretty interesting. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. I think that was a long resume on the, on the podcast. No, no, I, I like that. So, so the 30-year the desk job is not really uh, your thing. It's oh, no, here. God, no. So you see, <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I know about my, my, my makeup. And that was really important, I think, Ben. I think that, you know, you know who you are. Yeah. You know, I'm, a, I'm an explorer. I'm a, I'm a tinkerer. I like big picture stuff. I don't know if it was a gift or not, but I, I just do not get nervous in front of a microphone, whether it's on stage, speaking in front of a thousand people at an event or doing a podcast. I, I just feel natural doing that. And that's a mm -hmm. pretty rare skill I'm finding. So I've leveraged it. I like speaking. I like communications, like helping people. I think that's great. You know, and uh, one thing it reminds me of, too, is now that I've been doing this podcast for it'll it'll become i think it's about nine months now and uh you know there's a few themes that have uh have been uh, coming out and one of those is this you know idea that i've you know kind of the polymath i think there's a few other words out there for it but it's this idea that people touching a lot of different 
areas and in their careers have moved around and they've, they've, they've been able to learn a lot of different skill sets. And I, it, it sounds to me like you're, you're a perfect example of that. Cause even the way you describe your curiosity and the desire to tinker. And there's uh, this one woman I interviewed over at L'Oreal, uh, Sarah Devonzo, and she talks about this idea of tinkers and she has some funny ways. I, she calls them uh, pokers and lickers and lickers and something like that. But she has this idea of people that love to explore, but it seems to me like that skill set that you're talking about that she's talking about and that you've kind of lived is going to be absolutely essential, you know, going forward for if you want to be successful. I mean, does that make sense to you? It does. So I have this recurring thought that it's that, that it just doesn't want to leave me. I, it's like gum on my shoe, right? I just can't <laughs> seem to get it off me. And the thought is this, when everybody has access to the similar technology, what's the differentiation? Right. So, so let's think about it. Like Ben, let's say you and I decide we want to go out and compete in the big data space and some AI and some machine learning and create a consulting company. We can find five or six or seven other folks, some either Stanford or MIT, PhDs, whatever, it doesn't matter. And we can create a company. And now let's say we want to go after gene therapy. We could literally compete, at least from a technical basis, with Pfizer or Allergan or Merck or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we'd have access to the same technologies that they do, if not better, because we're not encumbered with legacy systems right we're not we're not uncovered with the rigidity of those those systems and and so when that's the case ben what's the difference in the competitive world to me it's the building of those skills that you just said how do i free myself from the rigidity of it how do i free myself from the sacred cows that i personally think that i can't go do anymore because they're you know we can't do that how do you free yourself of that stuff you know, if we pivot a little bit into your company, you know, I, you're, I know you're with the Sumo. You guys are breaking glass every day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're 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 literally going after glass towers with hammers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, man. such a vivid I mean, analogy. <laughs> well, you think about it. I mean, I don't. You know, I don't want to pick on the central teams, the central IT teams, stuff like that. But they're, but if you really think about the data. Those data lakes and those those data those centers of gravity within inside those large organizations, man. Those are mm. you want to talk about just rigidity, man. And they know that they're rigid. They know that, but they don't see a way out. Yeah. Right? And so gaining those skills at least gets you to the point where I can question and not feel somebody's attacking me. I can kind of get a little bit more um, alligator skin on my body around, around being able to be more flexible and questioning because I have access to resources and it's not just a conversation that's pointless. You go back three or four years, we have these conversations today. People are going to say, why even have the conversation? It's pointless. We're, we're, we're locked into this big infrastructure. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. Right. That's not the yeah. case today. That's not the case at all. That makes a lot of sense. You know, the, how the, the barrier to entry and, you know, even, even, even something like, a larger part of what you're you're talking about, going back to what you said about careers and people kind of in the, you know, technology space or whatever, you know, as I've been, you know, because I do a lot of training here and, you know, trying to explain people what's going on. And, and I, I think sometimes we miss the forest for the trees, right? You know, as you would normally say, because there's a tendency to think about, oh, well, they're having this problem with this piece of technology. They're having this problem with this process or using, you know, this way of thinking versus that way of thinking where there, there seems to be this much there's a larger 
societal change going on, which is just being manifest in the technology industry and something maybe called DevOps or whatever you want to call it. But the point is, is that there's a there's a transition between these kind of rigid hierarchies where people get told what to do and and you build these elaborate systems that kind of, you know, uh, match that hierarchy, you know, kind of like Conway's law. Right. And then that's shifting to these much more fluid learning organizations and you you yourself have to be fluid and i and and it seems like there's not always a there's not always a recognition in general maybe that's changing but there's not always a recognition in general for the people in the middle of this this is what what's happening they tend to think well i'm i'm dealing with this day to day but actually you're you're really part of this massive tectonic change going on in the way we do work yeah and um and the, the companies and the people that are going to thrive are the ones who recognize that and take advantage and and, and adjust I totally agree. So one of the things that's a personal passion of mine is advocacy of technology people. Mm-hmm. What I mean by advocacy, before, I, I want to say within the last few years, but we really didn't have to worry about advocacy of technology people because so much of the day-to-day IT motions, the, the infrastructure that's in place, the procurement processes, the compliance, governance, and risk, all these things that go into the behaviors of, of the fundamentals of processing data globally are, are pretty set, right? They were, they, you know, you, there was a lot of refresh motions going on and stuff like that. People were pushing new barriers around the various things that they can build. This shift, this tectonic shift that we've been experiencing has dramatically changed it such that the decision-making processes that many of the folks today, those decisions are being made by data, right? Right. So back to, you know, how does the data influencing the day-to-day changes in not just technology folks just, but a broader economy, we are at the precipice of the outsourcing of jobs to automation and it's not mechanical automation Mm. right we're seeing the replacement of key fundamental roles and jobs and stuff like that that were happening internally with more automated processes that the public cloud and other places are going to be being bringing to the to the table so as a result of that people are really scared i mean they're privately I, i get technology people going literally coming up to me and saying i don't know what to do next I don't know what job I should take, where I should go, who I should go work for. It's moving so fast, right? Mm. They thought that the landing zone for the next 10 years for them to retirement was well in place, and that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. So a personal passion of mine, Ben, is to, is to help create some advocacy for technology people. You know, Who do they go to, not just me personally, but you know, who do they go to broadly? Where do they go to to get non-commercial advice, right? Right. Oh, join this XYZ company because, you know, it's the place to be because we're the best, right? Put the, the brand on it and, you know, promote right. it and put marketing right. all over it. That's not what we need as a community. What we need as a community is, is transparency and some sort of honesty that says, no, we don't have it all figured out. And we may not know everything, like that, but we can make some really good decisions based on some true North values about, you know, what's the right thing to do. And so now you're getting into my my other side of the world, which is all about personal you know, goal setting and that kind of stuff like that. And that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 you know, well, even as you're saying, because I was listening to you talk on the, on the way coming in on your, your podcast about retaining top talent. Yeah. It was great to hear your perspective on that because you, you're 
you're getting at that kind of the, the human side of what we're talking about is that we're in this constantly changing landscape. There's so much going on. There's, there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of excitement, but there can also be a lot of, it can be nerve wracking that people are kind of across the board are finding that, you know, the sand underneath their feet is, you know, is, is shifting. So a lot of what you're talking about is building these organizations where people can feel challenged and feel appreciated and they, and they feel like they're able to achieve their best. And a lot of that is around building more of these learning organizations, these teams that actually, you know, what was it right? We're building each other up and, and working together for, you know, a greater goal and things like that. But it's, it's, it's part of that same, that same shift. And, and uh, it's, it's the people need to change themselves, but also the organizations need to change and the leaders need to change. And it seems to be a lot of what you, what you, you kind of a, a big passion of yours, it sounds like. It is a big passion of mine. So, you know, that podcast and that article, I, have, I think I have an article go with it too, is at the core of a leadership tenant that I believe in. One of the things that we did at Cloud Technology Partners, you know, with the, some really great guidance at the, at the rudder of the ship, a guy named Chris Greendale, John Rounds, and Bruce Coughlin. These were some of the key founders of the leadership. They put the well-being of the individual first. Mm-hmm. And this was hugely important because they believed at a very, very deep level that if you took care of the individuals, the community will thrive mm-hmm. instead of putting the community first and the individuals second. And that context of a people first, team, um, individual first context is hard to absorb when you, we've been habitually trained to, to say, hey, the company has got to come first, right? right. And we all have to make money. We all have to run a profitable organization and we have to do some things. So those are those true North pieces, but the, what are the tactics that actual tactics day to day that you can do to support that? Well, when you put the person first, meaning that I am here to look after your personal well-being first, above all things, it may be here at this company. It may not be here at this company. You may do better at another company. But when you have that kind of transparency with somebody and you talk about that in a way that they've never had a conversation with managers before, mm-hmm. they do things that are really counterintuitive. They don't go anywhere. They, they tend to stay because they're not getting that kind of attention anywhere else. And so we, we saw some uh, exceptionally low turnover rate. I mean, in, in a hyperscaling market, right? We were expecting, why not? at least having 10% turnover, we had less than 4%. Wow. Over a four-year period. It, it, was, it was ridiculously low. Yeah. And, you know, so we had a good team of people who really cared about you. And we, were, we launched out people who didn't fit pretty quick. They, they just bounced out because, you know, they were, they, were, they were not putting the other people ahead of themselves when it came to, to objectives. They were, they were very much me, me, me people, right? So we moved those folks up and out. But, but I wanted to ask you a question, if you don't mind. If sure. we can uh, talk about that, Ben. So what's that cultural shift like inside your organization? You guys are, I personally see Sumo Logic as being one of those, it's not just cutting edge. It's, it, you've always been questioning, right? You've always been questioning status quo. You guys have a hammer looking for glass to break, right? That kind of stuff. But what's that cultural change like inside your organization? How do you bring people in and get them acclimated to your guys' world? You know, it's a good question. And I'm not, I'm not used to my guests asking me questions. I like that. You're putting me, uh, <laughs> keeping me in my toes. No, it's good. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's been, it's kind of changed over time because one of the reasons why I joined Sumo Logic personally is kind of sounds similar to some of the things you've, you've done in the past that I, I wanted to go to a place where I felt like I could make a difference and it was a smaller team. And as we've 
we've grown, I think the the manifestation, I guess you could say, of, of what we're talking about changed. Because, you know, when it, early on it was, you know, in the you know few dozens of people, you're talking about a team where everybody knows each other by first name and, and you mm-hmm. see each other every single day. And, and I think that was a lot of that culture could be set directly by the founders. So our, our founders always had a, we talked about the company being a family and about, you know, caring about the individual people. And I think that was pretty clear. I mean, there was, there was several situations where there were a couple of times where I made some mistakes and it felt like, well, you made a mistake. We learned from that, move on, but you're part of the family. We want to keep you part of the family. And so it was a very good environment to learn and, and, and grow there. But, and, and I think as we, as we, as we grew, part of the thing we had to learn was that you, you couldn't just have word of mouth value. So part of, I know this transition we went through is like, how do you Mm -hmm. actually establish those and document those? So I remember like about, I think it was about four years ago now, maybe we actually documented those and clearly put them out there and kind of tested them. And, you know, now they're on our windows and, and uh, you know, they're, they're a big part of our training process, but that also took a while because we, we also went through a transition where, you know, we weren't necessarily hiring according to our values. And, you know, I mean, there's a, right. you know, we had to adjust that. And I, I feel like at this point, you know, our CEO or mean has done, it does a really good job and, you know, people, you know, below him to kind of maintain that culture as part of our hiring process. You actually hit on something and I think it was in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Freakonomics. Mm-hmm. He spoke about something called the Dunbar number. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. I vaguely remember that. So a Dunbar number is like a, is 150. So primates can oh, hold together, right. hold together social context without hierarchy, without role definitions, et cetera, up to about 150 or so. And this guy Dunbar uh, figured this out. So you see companies like Gore-Tex never having an operational unit bigger than 150 people. Mm. And they've been able to have a multi-billion dollar company because of that. Now at CTP, I literally watched it happen when we clipped over 150. All sorts of stuff happened, right? Yeah. Communications got exceptionally harder. The wheels came off the, the ship for a few things. Sales struggled, right? We weren't connecting the dots. We were, it, it, was, it was incredible to watch it happen. And that's a rough patch for, yeah. for companies, you know? So having documented, would you, would you call it the- um, Core uh, values. You, the core values, yeah, but you had named it uh, uh, something else beyond beyond talking core values. I think it's what you had said. It was yeah. actually written down. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's not that word of mouth. Word of mouth, that's it. Word of mouth core values. Because <clears throat> after you hit 150, that falls apart. Right, right. And so uh, from a structural point of view, I find it just fascinating human behavior, you know, human nature that these are some of these limitations that we have built into us yeah. and that I don't. I don't blame, we did, I, I was trying to communicate to our team. I said, don't blame yourself for these things right here. This is a natural problem area. Mm-hmm. This is going to happen. And we have to figure out new ways to manage through it. And, and you know, fortunately we did. But I have to say it, it was a struggle for us. Yeah. A real struggle to get there. No, absolutely. You know, and I, I think to, to that point, as you can see, if you're not careful, then different. I remember I, I saw that that 150 number somewhere else. It's this book called Tribal Leadership. I'm forgetting off the top of my head um, the, mm. the authors, but it was a, it was a good book, and they talked about the same thing because you you form these tribes within a company that they overlap, but they're never going to be bigger than 150 just by the nature of of, of, of humans, and so they they kind That's of separate. Right. And your culture will actually change between those if you're not if you're not careful. And I, I don't think that's 
easy to manage and they've, they've done a good job of it here. And I've been other places where I don't think they did a good job of it and, and, uh, tried to establish it top down. And, uh, you know, that's, and it, it, it goes back to what I was saying before that I've definitely seen that proved out here with this, this whole change in the way an organization works. Because when I first got into the workforce, we were just coming kind of out of that command and control. And I, I remember I, as part of this company I worked for, got acquired by EDS and went into EDS mm-hmm. and they were, they were literally, it was so visibly part of that transition. And they, they were just coming out of this uh, you know, sense where you wore suits at work. They turned up the air conditioning so you could wear your suit. They, you know, oh, people man. just, you know, assumed you were in a hierarchy. And I remember coming into that and it was um, like, we, I worked for this startup called loud cloud and, and I'm oh, getting those guys. A, yeah. yeah, it was it was a it was a fun place to work. I mean, uh, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz, those guys. Yeah, yeah, the hard thing about hard things. He wrote that great book. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of fun reading that, hearing from his perspective. I'm like, oh, that's what you were thinking. Mm. <laughs> but uh, we. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, have, uh, anybody who's listening to this podcast, you have to go pick up the book, the the hard thing about a hard things, right? It, it a, is a good. It's a good read. It definitely. It's a good is. read, but I, I think there's some, you know. What's the word? You got a little bit of rose-colored glasses because it turned out the way it turned out. You tend to yeah, not yeah, exactly. It's like, see well, everything that you might want to see. Yeah, exactly. It must it must have been right because it, <laughs> it it worked out. Good. Part of the company got acquired by EDS, and and I was part of that company. And I remember it was this it was such a clash of cultures because we were like we have the five thousand dollar cappuccino machine that I learned how to operate. Uh, you know, so I can make myself lattes in the morning and we had a refrigerator full of beer and it was this, right. and then EDS right. comes in and is like, we don't allow alcohol on the premises. And so, you know, of course then, you know, being the, you know, the kind of team that we were on, I think there was one night and they just came and drank it all. They're like, okay, ah. that's fine. Uh, <laughs> so it was, just, it was just a very different culture, huge oh, clash. Dude. And I remember going over there and. Oh, it was just, it was just funny. Like every time they would have these, um, these potlucks and literally mm-hmm. on, as soon as it was announced, the entire company would rise from their cubicles and descend upon the potluck. And it was just, it was just the strangest thing. And I, I remember kind of coming out of that and it was, uh, and they were good people. Like I met a lot of wonderful people there, but it was just a, this, this kind of deep, um, kind of cultural sense of, of, of how a company is, is, is run. And, 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 mm-hmm. and definitely when I went to, a later startup later that was one of the things i was looking for is a is a place where <laughs> i didn't feel like i was being put in some cubby hole somewhere to you know fulfill some particular need that was defined you know five levels above me what well, was interesting ben is that that there's a lot of people in technology that like that yeah they like that predictability they like that stability right they want they want that routine in place and and a lot of technologies that are the core of business today that are that what I call the cash technologies, right? They're part of the whole cash flow cycle, whether it's front end, accepting orders, taking orders, marketing, that kind of front end stuff, all the way back through recognition of capital, the accounting systems, you, you name it, right? Anything having to do with how much money are we making, right? Those systems relatively don't move very quickly. Right. You know, the, the front end stuff does, but that back end stuff doesn't. So there's a whole group of people I estimated using a number of sources, but there's about 28 million IT professionals that are in and around that kind of work wow. globally. It's a lot. Well, that's crazy. Okay. That is the target of the public cloud. Mm. They're, t- they're literally are targeting that group. And so you think about all of the Indian outsourcers and what they 
what they've been able to accomplish over the years, right? You know, it's just mm-hmm. miraculous if you really think about it <clears throat> that they've been able to pull pull off what they've done. And then what's happening to, you know, all of this nationalization that's happening around data in Europe and throughout the world, just so much upheaval and change, man. And we're back to, again, how does someone navigate this? How do they get out of this world and, and change? So if they are in a culture like what you just talked about, where they've been used to staying in one spot, you can see why they're scared. They're just, this is coming. Yeah. And it's, it's coming at speed. <laughs> yeah. There, there slowly. Was, we, we invited a speaker to come to our, our kickoff and, and she, she, she had a quote about uh, somebody talking about that, but it, it, um, it really struck me cause it was very personal. Cause they, they basically, the quote described these people that have, you know, like basically a guy who spent the last 20 plus maybe 30 years of his life learning how to program, you know, this particular piece of hardware like AIX or something from, you know, HP or whatever it was, they were an expert on that and they had been told to be an expert. They've been told to specialize they, and they had specialized and they've been, they had done exactly what they were encouraged to do. And mm-hmm. now the organization's coming around. It's like, well, actually, we're going to throw all that out. You're going to learn this new operating system, Linux. You're going to go and do it in the cloud and you're going to do that tomorrow. And, you know, it's kind of like, what? Yes. What, what am I supposed to do with that? And then basically it, it said that, you know, and the quote was, I think, was from the manager. It's like, well, we have to deal with that specialization. And we specifically said we manage through attrition. <laughs> so basically wow. saying getting rid of the people. And 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 so right. I, it, it's, 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 it's hard. And I there's a clash of cultures here and, and there has to be room for like different, different operating, you know, models for how people want to work and being able to adjust to like, you can have a dynamic learning organization without everybody wanting, to, you know, basically having career ADD like I do, you know, there's a, yeah. there's, there, there's gotta be a balance there. And I, I don't think it's, I don't, you, you don't find many organizations that have, have found that yet. I think we haven't. One of the things I'm, I'm, I, I struggle with personally is, uh, you know, I've, I see things coming that most people may not see. And I, and I have to be careful as to how much I let out of the bag when I step into organization. So, you know, if I go and I meet with a team that's looking to transform their organization, so whether it's an internal organization like the central IT teams that are responsible for all the main systems, or it's the business units who are who are losing market share because of a competitor that's much more nimble and doesn't have the legacy concerns or the things that are holding them back, the legacy systems. Both of them, they often don't have a realistic view of what's happening in the marketplace. And I've learned over the the last couple of years that if I share transparently with, you know, you guys are in trouble, Mm -hmm. you know, that, this is this is happening right now, and the more that you dig in and delay and kick the ball down the place, the more that your job is likely to become under attack, and then will flat out disappear. They'll just because you know, the folks will who at the end of the day who are chartered to run the company based on some sort of margin or operating profit of the organization, they're going to make decisions. That if they see an opportunity to send something elsewhere for less money that will get them to what they would comp- would think would be a comparative result, they're going to do it. Right. And at the end of the day, technology is is in place to consume itself. It, it will always consume itself. And I just think that at times we we are 
we're, we're not being very honest with ourselves when it comes to what is what's next and how do we adjust to what's next. So as a result, I'm just really interested to see how this is going to shake out. <laughs> it's just a really interesting time right now. Yeah. Really interesting. You know, I agree with you. You know, and when... One maybe, uh, you know, final point here that I'd, I'd be interested to hear um, what you think about, because mm-hmm. we, we talk a little bit about decision making with data. And one, one thing that comes to to, to mind is um, I've had a couple different conversations with different people about, and it seems to really come down to, you know, experience, you know, versus the data, because there's a, there's a tendency now, we, on the one hand, we talk about learning organizations, but then sometimes there's an almost slavish adherence to whatever that you think the data says. And, and, and there's, a, there's not always a recognition of experience, too, because what we're talking about right here is sometimes the, sometimes the experience is applicable, sometimes it's not. But, but really, and particularly this, this, this one guy, uh, Christian Mosberg, talked about like the levels of mastery, which I always found really interesting because he talked about it yes. like as a musician. And, you know, you and I talked, yes. I got to find a way to work in music somehow. Uh, but <laughs> there, you know, he talked about like when you're learning an instrument, you, you, you learn it first and you're following rules and you, you have, you're learning the rules and then you follow those rules to the T because that's the way you can play. And then, over time, you as you you master the instrument, you're able to walk away from the rules because the rules are in you. They're they're part of your makeup, and it becomes intuition and and things like that. And so you can you can take in ma- basically massive amounts of data is what it amounts to. Process that data, and then you know react to that data. So it's kind of like what he talked about it in terms of um, you know jazz. I think it was Miles Davis he quoted that said is like you you play what's not there. That's how you jam right. together. You you don't just copy what everybody else is doing. The new musician just tries to keep up. The 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 more mm-hmm. experienced musician fills in the gap. So it, it's part of that too. I think what you're seeing here as well, because I mean, it, it partly it seems like you you've got to learn new skill sets, but there also has to be a transition where we can take the experience and the intuition that people built over years to allow them to process more data and be able to take advantage of that as well. I mean, does that make sense to you? It totally does. Uh, back to that conversation with Miles Davis. I, it reminds me of a saying I heard, the music's always between the notes. Right. You know, it's the, I think about some of my f- most famous uh, musicians that I know I've, I've either played with or I've gotten to watch and see, they were the ones that always allowed the music to breathe, right? It was always the space between the notes that was always, to me, the best. And what you're talking about here is the sublime. Mm. And the sublime is is fundamentally the thing that that is so large or so big that we as humans can't comprehend it it's 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 a uh, what you called instinct or you know that intuition mm-hmm. that says i feel like there's something else here hmm. right so i can't right now for me i cannot point to what it is that i see happening in the marketplace i i can look at it i can grab probably grab a bunch of statistics but there's so much emotion in it hmm. that that you cannot ignore it right you just can't. It's there. It's palpable. But if I was to apply data logic to it, couldn't do it. Right. Can't do it at all. But you and I are in total agreement because we both sense the emotion of it all. Right. And so that that sublime or that space that data will take us to that first level of mastery that you're talking about is absolutely a mandate. But the true leaders of our world coming up now We'll take all those data points and then intuit the direction, right? Mm-hmm. To me, they'll intuit that next, but those are going to be our great leaders coming up. And boy, if they don't know how to communicate that, 
This is one of my biggest worries, Ben, by the way, is that we have a generation, a couple of generations coming up that don't know how to talk to each other yet. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to learn, right? They have to learn because that's, that's human nature is, is communications. They've learned how to talk to each other over the internet. Okay. That's fine. But if you, I mean, I'm going to take a little quick detour. You think about what Congress did with the uh, CEO of uh, Google, right? Mm -hmm. He did his best to communicate with the Congress uh, about what's going on. However, he used terms and language that just flew right over their head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? And he was patient, tolerant, stuff like that. He did all the right things, but he still was unable to communicate the fundamentals of what they were doing and why they were doing them. Mm. In a way that the the other side of the a very powerful organization must know. And that is what's coming up in our culture. So mm. how do we transcend that, right? That's that's a people issue. And then how do we bring that forward? So those that will take this data are going to have to communicate it in a way that's going to make sense to the masses. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, you guys are at the core of this right now. And Sumo is at the core of this data accumulation and this logic and these yeah. assembling of these things. But somebody's going to have to communicate the results to the masses. It absolutely makes sense. And I, and I think that goes back to, you know, what I was mentioning before. And I, I think you've actually connected a couple of dots for me. It was, and it's, it's great because I think partly that is the way you cannot communicate to an audience that you have no experience with. So part of this is, is part of that idea of, polymath or whatever you want to call it. I'm sure there's, there may be different words for it, but the idea is that you have to actually go experience and um, right. you you actually have to be immersed in it. Even in a way, like go back to the way I think uh, this guy Modsberg said, it's like you can't you can't actually solve problems until you you, you give a damn. Like you, you actually have to be invested and you have to connect. That's a really good point. You, I just learned something. You can't solve problems unless you give a damn. Yeah, it's, it's about caring. And there's, there's something very human about that. Very, very yes. human about it. That our, you know, I, I don't know if our artificial intelligence will ever do, but the, the that that idea, and I, I think you, I think you're, you're spot on. Is that the, the the next generation of leaders and the leaders even now, you know, moving up, is that can you step out of yourself and your own personal experiences and who you are, connect with these other groups of people, and that'll help you both to lead and communicate, but it also help you to succeed in business because those people are your consumers those are the people who are actually going to be buying whatever it is you do and you have yeah. to be able to make those connections good stuff yeah i think that is a fantastic note to wrap this up on uh, this was a lot of fun I, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, thank you for your time well thank you for approaching me at reinvent and uh, connecting that was a great show and i'm really eager to watch your company continue to, to move and influence the market too so uh, let's make sure we stay in touch <laughs> absolutely all right. And everybody, thanks for uh, listening to this episode and check us out on iTunes or your uh, favorite podcasting platform and be sure to put in a comment, like us, uh, and give us some uh, stars so that other people can find us. And thanks uh, everybody for listening. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud native machine data analytics platform delivering real time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.